Welcome to PX17. My name is Jess Noonan and I'm joined by my colleague Peter Jewell. Just a reminder to our listeners to visit our website at www.planningexchange.org for details on past and future podcast guests. As always, I'd like to give a special shout out to our wonderful sponsor Maddox, who are the lawyers to call when you need practical solutions to complex problems. When you need a compelling advocate for VCAT, planning panels, advisory committees and higher courts on appeals, Maddox has got you covered. Please refer to their website at www.maddox.com.au for further details. Today we're very happy to introduce Chris Goss as PX17. Chris is the founding director of Orbit Solutions, which was established in 1999 and which specialises in architectural and visualisation services. Welcome today, Chris. Chris, um, you've, always, you've always been attracted to technology, early, early, even from an early age. Can you just give us uh, our listeners a bit of a background on that? Sure. Uh, when I was going to school at an early age, I was already wandering off to uh, early morning computer sessions and doing some computer programming. Um, I had to leave home early just to be able to get there. And uh, you, you've always been intrigued by the puzzle of technology. What, what fascinates you about it? It's the pieces and it's how you put it all together. I guess with technology, the thing that I find most fascinating is that when we're looking at one single piece, it doesn't necessarily make sense. But when we start putting the puzzle together, we can come up with all sorts of different solutions. You've had many roles over the years, um, some that people might not know about. What was it like being a wilderness guide? Uh, it was interesting. The, uh, the thing that made it most fun was being part of a group of intrepid travellers. And I think that at times the experience of travelling with those people uh, gave insights into the human condition when they were under duress that uh, you wouldn't normally see in people. So where did you, where were you a wilderness guide? Was that uh, in Australia? That was in Tassie, where I grew up. So ah. just, just at times while I was at university. And Chris, you also worked for a year on German building sites as well as, well as a multitude of other roles, including as an architect. What did you learn in Europe? We're talking mid-90s, yeah? Yeah, it was in the mid-90s. It was, uh, I was based in Berlin uh, and after the fall of the wall, the reunification process was underway. And uh, there's a lot of rebuilding going on in and around Berlin, as well as other parts of Europe. But uh, there's a little bit of the United Nations, really. So while I was exposed to the German system uh, and certain, I guess, uh, numbers of German practitioners, most of the people that I was working with were from a whole range of different nationalities. It was a little bit like the UN. So what actually led you to Germany? I had a number of options after I graduated. Um, one of them was to go up into Asia, where I'd actually thought that I was going to go and work in Japan or somewhere like that. Uh, this is after uni? This is after finishing at university. And I thought, well, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? Uh, an opportunity presented itself to go and work in a practice over in Berlin, uh, which I thought, why not? So I sold my car, packed my bags, and uh, with a one-way ticket, headed over there. And Chris, you started your current business, Orbit, uh, around the turn of the century? Well, that sounds like a long time ago. <laughs> and uh, one of the ways you funded the practice was through providing training and consultancy to architects with new technology. Can you just explain a little bit about that? Sure. When I came back to Melbourne, or actually back to Tasmania um, for a Christmas break, 
I was offered a job via my uh, old university lecturer contacts uh, for a role here in Melbourne, which was for the national distributors of Archicad. Um, it was a state role which um, looked at the sales training and implementation of Archicad, uh, which was one of the early BIM software products. Um, so, Sorry, what's BIM software? BIM is building information modelling. At the time, BIM wasn't the term that was used. It was sort of an object-based system, uh, and it was the step beyond what would be considered a vector-based um, software solution, which was really just replicating what we were doing on the drawing boards, which was the way I was trained originally, mm. uh, and then tracing it uh, or replicating that as 2D CAD. Can you explain, Chris, briefly uh, the impact of this technology on the architecture profession? It's been a huge paradigm shift. Um, it's, it's occurred concurrently with a whole series of other uh, issues that architects have had to address at a, at a social level as well as a, uh, a business and industry level. Um, I think the practices that have ad adopted it are in a good position to, to move forward and evolve as different architectural practices uh, need to do. Um, but it's not, um, it's not always evident on a day-to-day -day basis. And computer visualisation has many uses. Can you explain a few? Well, for us as a practice, we use it right through the design process. Um, we use it feasibility levels, at town planning application levels. So are we talking 3D visualisation or what, what do you mean by visualisation? So visualisation... Certainly. Visualisations uh, in 3D as well as 2D. Um, it's, it's actually in five dimensions. So we, we talk about multiple dimensions where we're presenting information which may be uh, graphically based, maybe uh, immersive, it may be based on time or cost. Um, so there's there's a series of different dimensions that we deal with, mm -hmm. uh, and we are trying to we try and use the tools that we've got uh, with all the stakeholders all the way through, and we use it um, right from the earliest stages of implementing uh, information from the surveyors on site context information, costing elements. Um, we mine the internet for uh, objects that are intelligent and parametric mm. that we can utilise and we, we try and be as flexible as we can in, in how we present that. And it's a visual medium, so when we reference visualisation, we, we're talking about just how we access that information. Mm. Chris, I, I must say I love freehand sketches done by architects and they're very, they used to be commonplace, but a lot of architects don't seem to have the ability to draw a lot of it seems to be CAD-based now. Am I being overly hypersensitive? Oh, you're, you're, you're moving with the times, Pete. <laughs> you've recognised you've recognised something, I guess, that uh, is a romantic ideal. I think it's Thank and that's and it's and it's, and it's nice that you like a little bit of romance. I I think <laughs> that the connection between your hand and your eye. And, and the capacity for your brain to inform itself by some of the actions that you undertake using that, that level of dexterity is important. That said, the, the way that we use you know, interface tools like a mouse or um, light pens and, we, and the keyboard even um, can provide the same level of input uh, and the same 
creative inspiration and, and triggers that were once used with a pencil. Now, the output can look very different, um, but I think what we're seeing is uh, with the Im implementation of new technology, and, and we're right on that cusp where that manual dexterity and the shaping and the carving of spaces is becoming more, um, more part of the process again. So we're almost going full circle, and you can see it in some of the, the technology that's been put out in, uh, you know, you watch TED Talks and YouTube Talks. I think it also depends who your audience is, though, as well, because I think um, people are sometimes a little bit dubious about technology as opposed to the old school hand sketches. People sometimes find the hand sketches more believable because they think that, you know, you're trying to, um, I don't know, pull, pull the wool over someone's eye, I suppose, by by using technology, which isn't the case, but I think there's there's definitely a perception there. And, and Jess, I'll add that some architects seem to be in love with the technology so much that, that yeah. they forget what it's trying to achieve. Again, too critical? Uh, no, it's, it's an... It's a perception thing. It's a reasonable it's... Expe expectation that you're going to be providing information in a consumable way. Mm. That's, if, you, if you can't convey your message, then... No one's going to understand what it is that you're trying to get across. I know as a planner, so many times people come up to you and say, but what is it really going to look like? This isn't an accurate representation when, when you give them a 3D image. And you're like, well, no, it is. It's a 3D image. It's not a hand sketch. But there seems to be sometimes this, this illusion about use of technology as opposed to the old school methods, which I find quite strange because I've always worked in an industry where there has been the 3D modelling and 3D imaging. Well, Chris, can you describe the rate of progress in computer visualisation? So from the turn of the century when you started to now? The, the word that springs to mind is intense. Uh, the, the interesting part about it is that as we see the rate of change and we try and measure it, all of the components that go into it uh, compound and so we get this it's not exponential but it's um, it, it tends to jump around and different focuses at different times on whether it's software or hardware uh, or the talent pool and the, the collect it's almost the collective conscience of, of the talent pool that uh, we see emerge in the images and I've got to ask you there is Moore's law which you might just explain briefly to our listeners is there a Goss law? Well, the Moore's law came about in the 60s. I think it was, had some connection to IBM. Uh, and it's a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy from all accounts uh, where technology, uh, or at least microprocessor technology, was doubling every 18 months. And that, that seemed to occur for, I think, from the mid to late 60s until around 2007. Uh, after that, the, uh, the rate of development seems to have uh, slowed down um, but that said software and other types of um, operating systems have also continued to increase so there's an ongoing development. Now you know I'm going to ask the Goss law, can you make a prediction? <laughs> this will be quoted from here on end. Oh dear, <laughs> well, if, if I was going to put a law together for you I would have to suggest that it would be that the intensity of the experience that we uh, are going to feel 
is going to continue to increase. So it's a, it, it's going to go from an intellectual experience to an ex, a quality, which is effectively a quantitative experience to a more qualitative experience. I'm happy with that, Jess. Mm. You heard it here first. <laughs> Uh, what are some of the new fields of computer graphics are pushing into, like smart, smart cities and data analytics? Oh, well, it's all about big data now and the layering of data from the virtual world over the real world. So with the adoption of technology that allows us to augment virtual reality uh, and, and layer that over... Um, the world that we experience and interact with, the temporal world, then we'll be able to gain access to all manner of different sources of information, analysis of information, uh, and, and the review of information. And at the moment, the key in moving forward is actually around the ability to verify data because you know there's the old saying about if you put something bad in, you'll get something bad out. There's other ways of saying it. But, uh, junk in, junk out, yeah. That's mm -hmm. it. That's one of the ways. So if we, if we can be rigorous in the way that we deal with the information, then, and we can analyse that and we can verify that, then we're going to be able to move forward rapidly and all, all stakeholders all through the process are going to be better off. What's the difference between augmented reality and virtual reality? Look, augmented reality is about how we bring the virtual and the real worlds together and how we lay that information over um, one part over the other. Mm. Uh, in a similar way, I guess, to the way we do a photo montage, you know, we might take a photo and then we might simulate a um, view of a model and we stitch them together. Um, that's, that's how augmented reality might be, we, you know, essentially where we can project onto a lens like a, a pair of glasses, um, we might be able to run a hologram um, moving forward and, and we'll see it as if there was a virtual um, object sitting in front of us on the table or a virtual building sitting in that context in, in um, the real environment. Mm. When we talk about the virtual environment, um, it's generally contained in and of itself. So... We can, we can simulate the environment. We can, we can layer real information in there, real, real uh, footage um, and real data that's been built up off, off physical context. But you generally review that through a screen, whether mm -hmm. it's an Oculus Rift-style screen or a Samsung um, headset you know, or even 2D and, on the screen. Chris, how's this technology going to help practitioners? Look, I think it's a natural, if it can be called natural, uh, or a synthetic evolution. Uh, the capacity for us to deal with the magnitude of information, the big data that's out there, it's really going to give us the, the tool suite that we need to be able to deal with it. And what about the public? Uh, the public are going to be the major beneficiaries mm. of it because uh, the information as it's verified by the experts, mm. uh, gets fed back into the pool and everybody can access that. And it means that we're not going to be held ransom to uh, fuzzy sketches that were produced in the good old days. Mm. Do we expect too much of technology, 
Chris, um, in terms of computer visualisations, I mean, you're competing against people who game, people who go to movies. You're, you've only got a week, two weeks to put something together, but people have got that common experience of high-end. Uh, there is, yeah, absolutely. Like every other movie now that we go to the cinema and see is the, you know, the multi-million dollar blockbuster where we're seeing you know, high-tech um, computer graphics integrated into you know, real-world environments. But on a day-to-day basis, we're on limited time, limited budget, um, and it's, it's a challenge to meet that expectation in the public. However, it's only a matter of time, and that trickle-down effect that we see coming out of you know, companies like Weta in New Zealand or uh, the other major studios finds its way through uh, to, the, to the type of tools and technology that we use now. I suppose there's efficiencies that come out of that natural evolution as well in terms of process. That's right. Um, it's very fashionable to talk about disruptors in today's economy. What are the disruptors in terms of the planning and technology and design world? Do you think these visualisations that we've been talking about are some of these disruptors? Mm, it's, um, I don't know if I'm really across what the idea of a disruptor is. I think every day... I think that shakes up I think, the, think Uber, what it's normal. done to the, 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 the taxi ride industry. Um, think Amazon, what it's done to delivery. Think all those things where it's, a, it's, it's new services to people. Uh, there's lots of examples, I would think. I mean, it's the, yeah, is okay. it the internet of things, do you think? Yeah, look, the internet of things is a, is a good uh, comparison, I guess, is a disruptor because... When I started university, I think we were one of the first years to get given an email address and none of us knew what to do with it because <laughs> um, there was no one else to email. So that paradigm, though, has gone on to shape everything that we do. And in fact, in BIM, it's an object-based paradigm and we use the same methodology of moving information around in the platforms and operating structures that we use. Um, and... I think that the business model that we operate in is also going to evolve. And do you think Australia is one of the key players in terms of the technology world or would you say we're close second behind the states? Look, I I think um, Australia's been recognised as an early adopter of technology. A lot of the IT companies um, that are international players test technology uptake in this country. Mm. Um, We're very keen to... You know, as, as a general population, to, to access information via new platforms as quickly mm-hmm. as we possibly can, uh, which has made it easier, I guess, from the, the way that we structured our business to, to be able to deliver um, our products. Uh, at the moment, we're developing new technology with the, the gaming interfaces that we're using and, and trying to build new media um, to deliver product as well. Can you talk about how tech is changing work collaboration patterns um, from the linear to the object-based? Yeah, I guess as a the disruptor model of the uh, the Internet of Everything that you referred to before, we, we're seeing a, a change in the business model. The, the central pool um, or data pool that everybody sends and receives uh, their, their inputs to and from it has become the uh, the core model. It used to be that everyone would go peer to peer in the old networking uh, structure, and each machine would have to talk to every other machine, which created 
massive network issues uh, from a traffic point of view and an inefficiency because it's a very slow way of moving information around. Uh, as soon as we move to that model where there's the central pool and each of the contributors can make very fast uh, and, and informed decisions. Has this got anything to do with blockchains? Blockchains? Is that a Chinese dish? Okay, I'll keep, I'll keep moving. Blockchains. Blockchains. Okay, let's keep going. Sorry. Don't know that. And you recently went to a conference in the States. Yes. What was that about? Uh, the New Urbanism Conference was over in the US in May last year. Mm -hmm. and I decided to head over with some other Australian colleagues to that. And uh, it was. What did, what did you learn? I learned a couple of things. Uh, one of the key things was just how advanced Australia is in, in our cities and in mm. the, the way that we plan our cities. I think um, the some of the models that they use for public-private partnerships were really fantastic. Um, the way that they tend to motivate or reward um, developers who are doing uh, projects with, with a grander public interest uh, mm. could be learned good learning uh, sources for us. Um, but generally speaking, I was... And what about the, the nature of the conference? Oh, look, the conference was great. It was a series of collaborative workshops essentially structured over a week where there was a, a broad program, but it was really a collection of... Uh, times and places where the like-minded people would come, would come together and discuss a particular project and it would be moderated um, and there would be, you know, a, a key speaker. But the key speaker seemed to really just be one of the, the participants within the broader discussion uh, and, and it just allowed a lot of people to come together and share ideas in, in a very uh, robust uh, way and a, and a very quick way of getting feedback for, for the participant. Maybe we could uh, have a festival of dangerous ideas. Chris, what do you think? I think that's a great idea. Shake it up a bit. <laughs> the uh, iPod or its derivatives are ubiquitous, yeah. Uh, do you believe headphones have changed how citizens experience the city? Uh, do we need all our senses to truly experience the city? Uh, I think a lot of people like to have their own soundtrack to life and there's a, ten there's a tendency to escape into that. Uh, you said soundtrack, not playlist. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, old school. I think, uh, I think that the experience, like life, the experience of a city is all parts of it, all senses of it. It's a tactile experience. We smell it as like... Our studio is opposite the South Melbourne market. You know, I, I get to experience the smells of the city after uh, a long weekend of uh, fish and, and meat, and, and it's a it's a part of what it is to to be in amongst it. Do you think the um, just going back to that question about the senses, um, our worlds and our I guess, governed by TV screens in, in all facets in our personal and um, working lives. Is the screen changing our experience of a city? It has, um, and it's really been a generational thing. Mm. I think that 
my kids and have been in that first generation that they call the generation the touch generation mm. where how they interact with the screen is very different i remember sitting on the plane flying somewhere when i was one you know, a few years ago and my son reached up and on the screen on the back of the seat and he flicked it and i was, I was saying no you can't do that and sure enough you could it's just I would never have thought that you could touch it because for the whole pe- you know period of flying that I'd been doing, you couldn't do it. You had to use mm. that horrible thing in the seat. Yeah. Um, now you jump on a plane and there's a very good chance that you'll see someone strap their Oculus Rift on and go into a completely different experience of what mm. the, uh, the form of entertainment or the, the way that they're consuming their media is going to be. And I actually expect that by the time my kids grow up, that, that this idea of a 2D screen and the way that we experienced entertainment and life as if we looked through a window at it mm. will be a quaint idea, much like when we think back of the, the grinder like pushing the film and it flicking up in, in black and white silent film. It'll, be, it'll just be a, a quaint, nice idea that you've mm. seen in a, in a movie or something that... It'll be very, very different the way that we experience it in the, yeah. in the coming times. Chris, you obviously start, you still get a big kick out of technology, the same as when you were travelling early to school to get, get to the one computer in the school? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and what are you currently reading, watching or listening that inspires you in your work? Oh, I love a good TED Talk. I, I'm a little bit hooked on the TED Talks. Um, they're good consumable uh, media by incredibly intelligent people usually. Yeah. Uh, Any particular ones you would recommend or uh, on your top the, three? I, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't. They, they change so rapidly. But I, I tend to like the ones that are around um, technology or the brain mm. and, and how we deal with that. Um, well, thank you, Chris Goss from Orbit Solutions. Um, we've done the recording, listeners, in Chris's very busy office, so you might have heard some of the background noise. Uh, we'd like to thank uh, our major sponsor, Maddox uh, Lawyers, for their ongoing support and making this all happen. Thank you, Jess. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jess. Thank you. For further information about this podcast and the series, please visit our website at www.planningexchange.org. Thank you.